Welcome back to another episode of the Ecumen, and today we are going to start into the next section of the Catechism. So we've covered lessons 1 through 14, kind of give the grounding, the basics of the faith, that's the Apostles' Creed. Now we move into the commandments of the Church. So today we're going to cover specifically in lesson 15, this is the two great commandments. Now before we get started, I want to ask everyone again, please make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel or follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify. Make sure to share this out so that other people can find out about it and also learn about the faith and share this with us. And then, uh, yeah, make sure to comment wherever you can so that we'll answer your questions and we can help you guys all get closer to God, the Catholic Church, and understand what it means to be Christian. So, all right. So without any further ado, Jake and I here. So Jake and Pete here today. I'm going to talk to you then starting with uh, question 188. Besides believing what God has revealed, what else must we do to be saved? Besides believing what God has revealed, we must keep his law. So this is the the action piece. This is the works part. So yeah, it's good to believe. It's good to have faith. Those are absolutely necessary. We have to believe that we're going to be able to be saved if we do what God wants us to do and believe in him. Um, but again, the, the emphasis is the doing. So uh, John fourteen fifteen is the example they actually have here in the catechism of if you love me, keep my commandments because we really have to be doing the work of God in order that we can truly express our faith and show that, like Christ, we are willing to give of ourselves for his glory and make sure that we're not going to do our will as opposed to his. Yes, that seems pretty obvious, I think. I mean, I feel like it, I guess objectively looking at it, it seems pretty you know, apparent that not only do you have to have faith in him, but you also have to, you know, keep his laws. Um, but of course, that's where many of the Christian sects have veered away from the Catholic Church, this idea of faith alone. So then question 189, which are the two great commandments that contain the whole law of God? The two great commandments that contain the whole law of God are, one, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with thy whole mind and with thy whole strength. And two, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So now these are contained in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five to 40. And this is where Jesus Christ summarizes the commandments that were already given to Moses, those 10 commandments. This is actually the foundation so that those actually all make sense. As what I'll do is I'll make sure to put on the screen the list here. So you guys should be looking at that. It'll actually explain how these relate to the Ten Commandments and how these also relate to the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Because this whole thing is related, and we don't want to make it look like there's some weird split-brain illogical conclusion here that God is trying to make us follow that's difficult. These are difficult because, oh yeah, fallen nature. They're not difficult because they're illogical. So we'll make sure to show that to you. But these two commandments contain basically this is what we need to do. And all of the other stuff is basically derived from it. So there's a logical flow here that we're going to look at today. Question 190. So to build on that logical flow, what must we do to love God, our neighbor, and ourselves? To love God, our neighbor, and ourselves, we must keep the commandments of God and the church and perform the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. So now we're going to go in here and... Uh, build on that. How do we do what God asked us to do? This is our works. And remember, I will say it again. These works are not our own. These works are God's works. If anything good comes out of our hands, it's because God is doing it through us and we willingly submitted to him to make that possible. Well, it's also the great issue with modernism, the idea of love, 
right? That is that really is the battle cry of secularist progressives is uh, love your neighbor, right? Love is love. Love your neighbor. Thou shalt not judge. Um, and it really is a misunderstanding of what Jesus is talking about when he says love, right? So you tie it into the corporal works of mercy. It's a very good way of doing it for people to understand, right, without getting into this whole discussion of, well, the original Greek, there are, what, five ways? It's something like six or seven. Different yeah. meanings to the word love, but tying it back into actually the Ten Commandments and the chief works of mercy are... Uh, a good way to actually explain it because of the fact that it doesn't loved in this context does not mean just blanket acceptance yeah there we got to watch out for false charity here because just because you want someone to feel good this is what eros is so even though we're talking about the meanings of of the greek here so in greek the three that i can remember off the top of my head are the agape phylos and eros eros is the am i feeling love so man i love that burger I love it when uh, you know my kids hug me. That doesn't actually encompass what agape is, which is the one that Christ actually uses, with the one that the gospel writers actually use when it was in the Greek, where they're actually talking about the sacrificial love. And that's why we're going to talk about works of mercy. And that's why we talk about works, because sacrificial love cannot be done by faith alone. So I have faith, great. But now what? how does the rubber meet the road? How does that prove out? to show that we can be a white martyr, that we could be a red martyr, that we could suffer everything and lose everything. In faith, that strength, that work is all through God's love. That's charity. So uh, 1 John 3.18 is the verse that's used here as they um, describe and teach this in the catechism. My dear children, let us not love in word, neither with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So great. We can say it, but again, like we always talk about is that words uh only go so far even though they have meaning and they have power it's in this case it's the actions that really make everything come together so that leads us into questions 191 and 192 what are the chief corporal works of mercy the chief corporal works of mercy are seven one to feed the hungry two to give drink to the thirsty three to clothe the naked four to visit the imprisoned five to shelter the homeless six to visit the sick and seven to bury the dead. Now, in times past, all of these things were done on a regular basis by all Christians, and it was not a responsibility of the government per se to do this, while the church kind of shirked it and gave up, kind of relegated this authority to them. So for a thousand years, the church was the place where the poor would go to get food and drink and you're talking not just physical sustenance, but emotional and spiritual sustenance. You're talking the word hospital in and of itself actually comes from the Knights Hospitaller as an example, that they would actually take people in and take care of them. During the Black Plague, when that was occurring, it was nuns and monks and religious. They were the ones taking care of the sick and making sure that they were going to be okay. And you had Catholics themselves that were giving up their time and their efforts to make sure that all these people were taken care of. All of these things are works that Christ would have done and honestly he did do to a greater extent than we ever could imagine um, that we're supposed to now emulate in our life here and now. So those tasks now rest on our shoulders to show God how much we love him. We love everybody else. So we love him first and then to show how much we love everybody else around us we do these corporate works of mercy. But it doesn't stop just there. So even though we can look at charities today and a whole bunch of other um, 
kind of financial, physical, worldly type things where we try to, in quotes, take care of people, even though we disregard their spiritual side. Well, guess what? The church doesn't do that. And that leads us into question 192. Which are the chief spiritual works of mercy? The chief spiritual works of mercy are seven. To admonish the sinner, to instruct the ignorant, to counsel the doubtful, to comfort the sorrowful, to bear wrongs patiently, six, to forgive all injuries, and seven, to pray for the living and the dead. Hmm. Interesting. Admonish the sinner. Yeah. What about judge not? With the whole judge not, I'll just answer my own quip. Um, people forget when Jesus essentially is saying, uh, you have not sinned, cast first stone to the Pharisees before the woman. People always forget the most important part of that, which is the what he then turns and says to the woman after they've all left, which is go and sin no more. So that's just a little side bit. But Purpose of amendment. Yes. Um, admonish the sinner. That is the probably the easiest way to ensure someone doesn't feel good about themselves um, and is kind of emotionally distraught for the time being, but is probably one of the best ways in which you can help them correct their life. It's not fun. Nobody likes being told they're wrong. Everybody has a generally a very bad reaction to it. Uh, varying degrees. They get hostile, they get defensive, they get uh, prideful, vindictive, all sorts of stuff. And nobody re- generally likes doing it. If you enjoy somehow lording over, then I'd probably veer away from any sort of spiritual work for mercy. But it's a very important one to admonish the sinner because how are people going to amend their lives and grow closer to God if they do not know that they're sinning or if they actually believe their sin is virtuous. Yeah, and I, I think there's two things that need to be talked about here. Is one, we don't do the corporal works of mercy here in order to promote the sinful acts of people that are offensive to God. So we're not doing this in a way that condones and says, yeah, yeah, it's cool. Just go out there and keep being a total disgrace from the standpoint of God's commands, God's expectations. We're doing the corporal works of mercy with the intent to ultimately do the spiritual works of mercy to give the guidance to individuals so that we are going to tell them, hey, cool, I'm giving you food, I'm giving you clothing, I'm giving you all these things to help you get back on your feet. But why did we fall in the first place? And in many cases, the fall was actually because these people are then mired in some cases in vice. Sometimes not, sometimes it's a natural disaster and the situation's great. Um, but we're trying to combine these things because a person, as we have talked about early on in these lessons, is not just a spirit and not just a body. It's body and soul. We have to take care of both sides. The corporal works are taking care of the physical, the body, and the spiritual works are taking care of the soul. All together, we take care of the whole package, and now we are then working to take the person, the whole person, and help them towards heaven. The second aspect of this combination of works that we're supposed to be doing again, empowered by Christ to make it possible. We're not Pharisees here. So Jake and I are here telling you what these commandments are. The priests are telling you what the commandments are. Your RCIA people would tell you what these commandments are. But we're not telling you as if we're perfect and we don't have any flaws. We are not Pharisees. We are not to be Pharisees. The Pharisees would go out there and then tell everybody, you will do X, Y, and Z, while hypocritically not feeling any desire on their own to actually adhere to those commandments. Our job, though, is not to be a Pharisee. Our job here is to be a Catholic and that I know I have sins. I know I'm working on my sins. I know I have many things I have to do in order that God would be happy with what I am doing and where I'm going and how everything else 
comes together in my life to glorify him and I don't want to offend him. Okay. But my failures do not prohibit me or keep me from observing the fact that objectively there is sin and offense against God. And when I see it, I have an obligation because Christ is not here standing next to me or in front of that person pointing a figure saying, don't do that again. That's our job. Everyone expects the fact that we're going to do that with our kids. Everyone expects the fact that it's going to happen in school. Everyone to some extent expects it would happen in the place of work that a boss would have an expectation of conduct and everyone signs agreements. But outside of that, when it comes into that filial love, so phylos, the other side of the Greek words on love, the brotherly love, we should have a desire to see our friends and family in heaven. We should have a desire to take even the poorest souls out there, um, be they Satanists, be they Muslims, be they misguided Protestants, uh, be they fallen away Catholics, or be they just Catholics in name only. All of these individuals are out there. We should be willing to go up to them and say, look, I don't want to see you in hell. And right now what you're doing is gravely offensive to God. That needs to stop. And in some cases they're ignorant. So the sins they're committing, although they could be mortal if they actually satisfied the three conditions that we talked about and that they knew they were grave, they actually had the intent to do it um, and, will. and the will then to follow through. So they did everything. If they didn't actually know it was a grave sin, then in the end they're ignorant. These are venial sins. So some of these people are blameless from that standpoint, uh, but these are, you know, our task to instruct them. Uh, we're supposed to give them hope whenever they see that, oh, no, I think this is all coming apart on me and they didn't know enough about the faith or about God or about grace to come back. And so our job here is to then do all this stuff, working with those people, body and soul, to help them get closer to heaven. And this is where our prayers come in. It's a lot of work to be a Catholic, but that's a good thing. So, spiritual and corporal works of mercy. I think it's interesting you brought up earlier about the idea the government takes care takes over a lot of this stuff. It's all very interesting to me because you can see there once the secular government has replaced God, you can see how things are twisted and perverted from the way in which they're intended to be the objective truth um, that God intended them to be into what we have now, which is this a we have a state run system for most of this and we have a relativist modernist laissez-faire if you will moral code about live and let live i think and i believe the way in which uh, a lot of these spiritual works of mercy so admonish the center particularly um instruct the ignorant i believe the, the way in which a lot of these are perceived by non-catholics they have this vision of pitchforks and torches and inquisitions and things like that. I guess I would just counsel you that anytime someone speaks to you um, and the first thing they're bringing up are, is the in inquisition, you're probably not dealing with someone who's well-rooted, well-grounded in history. Yeah, I think it, this would be a good time, too, if we're going to talk about admonishing sinners, instructing the ignorant, um, praying. We're also supposed to do a lot of forgiveness here. So forgiveness is a component of the Catholic. The Catholic cannot just sit there and judge like a Westboro Baptist and say, you're all going to hell because we have no idea. Um, and when we're going to talk about something like the Inquisition that is commonly thrown against Catholics to sit there and point out how uh, behind the times or how archaic or how harsh uh, Catholicism is, I think there's two things they forget. One, uh, or they don't know, 
that the Inquisition in and of itself that happened in Spain happened in the 1490s, I believe is when it kicked off, after Isabella and Ferdinand were able to finally get hold of the entire, all of Spain. And they allowed them within their government to sit there and go, what subversive forces are still here working against us? Because they had been fighting for 700 years against Muslims who had actually conquered what was the previously Christian country uh, these multiple kingdoms in in what is now Spain, and they subjugated them and then started to uh, impose upon them unholy and ultimately what are amount to satanic doctrines upon the Spaniards there, uh, Castilians, and I don't remember all the, the Valencians, all the other people there, tons of them. Uh, the point being that after they were conquered, after the Muslims were conquered and the Spanish were finally in charge again, um, the problem had been that there were Jewish doctrines and Muslim doctrines that were still being practiced by a bunch of the people who stayed in that country after the rest of the armies of the Muslims had been thrown out. And what they were doing was they were converting, in quotes, so that it would look like they were actually going to support the government. But what they were willingly doing the whole time is subverting the government, the culture, the people, and trying to go and work back towards what they had started with which the Spanish government, one would not be surprised, is not too keen on people working against their power, trying to unseat them from the throne. Strangely enough, they call this treason and a whole bunch of other crimes that go along with it. So the Inquisition was a government effort in order to stop the wrongful uh, attempts to remove the Christians from power. In the grand scheme, when you look at the outcome there, the outcome uh, actually shows one of the fairest courts that has ever been in existence on the face of the earth when actually evaluating whether or not these people were innocent or guilty you i'll make sure look it up i'll it's... look it up i'll post the article though to make sure that we have it here um because the point being they are not out there just trying to go on a whim and say well he feels like he doesn't like christianity so he's guilty that's not how it was and although everyone remembers the monty python inquisition skit because it shows up everywhere uh, making fun of the uh, catholics and the spaniards we have to remember that that is a caricature that's actually uh, twisting everything around on itself that is not what actually happened so it was a very fair court the results the historical documented cases in terms of what have happened are very uh reasonable by contrast when you look at the rest of the world and other religions and how people have treated each other, especially when you look at the 30 years war and how the Protestants treated the uh, Catholics, which was terrible. The Geneva conventions had to come out of the end of that war because of how they were treated. Uh, that, that was on both sides. Honestly, that was just an awful well, and war. there were people who were claiming who go with Catholic in name only who were willing to do some terrible things that were not humane. But at the same token, the thing was, is there were people who their doctrines, Protestant doctrines, allowed that to happen and said it was okay. The uh, By the same token, you have looking at what Islam did in multiple countries when they conquered. And it wasn't a, hey, we're going to talk to you. We're going to hold a trial. No, they just wholesale murdered. So you're talking in India. It was tens of millions murdered uh, as they conquered India, right? Uh, from what, 1,000 to 1,500, I think, is when that conquest was taking place. Um, but I can uh, link that in there as well in terms of what's happened. So by contrast, uh, those those things are not in line with what we're talking about. When a Catholic says corporal and spiritual works of mercy, our goal is to look at how we can take people who don't believe what 
Catholicism is, or people who claim to believe what Catholicism is, or people who are even trying to be Catholic and help them to come around to take that whole person, submit them wholly to Christ so that God's will can be done. That's what we want. The glorification of God and that all people actually share in God's will and God's worship and all the things we need to do for him. Um, that's where we're going with this. That's what this entire set of commandments is about is so that we can adhere to God the way he likes. This is not about browbeating people and making them feel bad because they weren't able to do it right because we all fail. We all sin. And notice the last spiritual work of mercy. Pray for the living and the dead. Yes. And Catholics have to pray for the dead because there's a better than fair chance. Most people we know based on what Christ has said, go to hell. We don't want that. Um, then in terms of people who are going to go to heaven, the majority of people don't go straight there because they were not able to do the full amount of atonement, which was required of them in this life so that they would be pure enough to cross through the gates of heaven without inflicting any stain upon it. And so since God is very particular about keeping everything in order and everything squeaky clean, everyone's got to get all of their imperfections burned off either in this life or in purgatory before they can go in. And the only people who actually will get to heaven are those people who died in a state of grace. So those people in purgatory died in a state of grace, but didn't atone. Well, that praying for the dead is our capacity to offer our sacrifices and our penances to help them in purgatory be purified so they can get to heaven sooner because time passes in purgatory at a whole different rate than it passes here on earth. And so we assume, I mean, who knows? But uh, yes. I believe it was and I, and I'll see if I can go find it because I ended up, uh, it was another father, Isaac Relia talk where he talks about purgatory and he had, there were two guys and they bas basically promised that they were going to do masses for each other. Uh, to get the other guy out of purgatory if it happened. And what ends up happening is this one of the guys dies, uh, only a few days passes. The priest who was supposed to do the prayers for the one who died remembers it and starts to do them. And the one who died comes back to him and says, what is taking you so long? It's, and basically it felt like it has been an insane amount of, you're talking years in purgatory while this guy up on earth has only spent days delaying. So the time is all out of whack. So this is the whole thing of God works on his own time. Purgatory is very difficult. We pray for the dead because we really don't want them to suffer too long if we can help it. Question 193. So what we'll do now is we'll go into uh, who's going to do the work, how they're going to do the work, um, and then we'll uh, go into the Ten Commandments from here. So, all right. Question 193. Is everyone obliged to perform the works of mercy? Everyone is obliged to perform the works of mercy according to his own ability and the need of his neighbor. So I can't ask a 10-year-old to go and take care of a sick person and feed them and clean their clothes and everything else. They're just not going to be able to do it. Nor can I ask them to go and instruct them on all the finer points of Catholicism. However, a 10-year-old probably can wash some clothes. A 10-year-old probably can uh, clean up sheets or something for a sick person or get them food or help the 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 poor and needy whatever so it's just a matter of we all do whatever we have the capacity to do that's the reason there's a hierarchy in heaven that means all of those individuals in heaven all the people here even like there's a hierarchy in the church there's bishops and priests and there's the lay persons you cannot ask a lay person to do a bishop's job the bishop has to do the bishop's job that's what he's there for and by the same token the priest that's his job the husband, he has his set job. The wife, they have their set job. The children have their jobs. All of us have to do all of our unique jobs to be in harmony. And I think the best analogy to put, in, put that all into context, if we're looking at, say, a football team, 
everyone cannot be the quarterback. There has to be one quarterback. Then everyone can't be a receiver either because the quarterback still needs to be guarded. The team still has to have the possibility to run or pass. Everyone can't be the running back. Everyone can't be the lineman. You have to have everyone doing their role. There can't be a hundred head coaches on the sidelines. You know what I mean? That all of this together, all of these individuals all have different roles on a giant team. And we are a team trying to work towards a goal here uh, that is heaven. We all have to make sure we play within our bounds and don't try to do what the other guy does. This is the reason why we're not supposed to emulate as an example, why we're not supposed to emulate a priest in his motions in mass. The priest has his job and his motions he does while the laity has our motions and our jobs. So we all have to complement each other and that's how we end up doing the works according to our ability and our station and ultimately what our neighbor requires of us. Question 194. Are all the ordinary needs done every day to relieve the corporal or spiritual needs of others true works of mercy? All of the ordinary deeds done every day to relieve the corporal or spiritual needs of others are true works of mercy, if done in the name of Christ. So this goes back to the idea that we had brought up uh, again in previous episodes regarding the fact that just because uh, someone does something that happens to be or look good, that does not necessarily mean it is a good work. In the same token, it does not mean it is necessarily counted as a spiritual or corporal work of mercy because a good deed was done. Um, the deed has to be done with the intent to glorify God, to fulfill his commandments out of love for him. Because if we begrudgingly do this work and be like, oh, I hate doing this again. I didn't want to do that. Why is it happening again a hundred times and we keep getting angry about it? We're actually negating any of the grace we could have gotten out of the task and we're negating any of the value it would have actually done the glory to God. Because when someone looks at us in the middle of that situation, what are they going to think? They're like, um, so you're kind of helping, I guess, but man, are you annoying and totally abrasive while you're helping me? How about you go help someone else or well, leave me just alone? Like it's like, not a sin if you're if you don't have the will, if you're not willingly committing it, you're being forced to do something that alleviates you from being in the uh, committing a mortal sin by the same token you cannot do something good and earn the graces if you are not willingly doing it if you are being forced to do it you know against your will or if you're i'm only here because i'm being paid well then it doesn't merit what it could it's missing the point yeah. so to speak and right now, the point is God. The point is we have to be willing to do these things, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how inconvenient it may be, and no matter what it takes away from us, uh, so long as those things taken are only time, money, worldly things, and we're not actually losing our soul. So in the grand scheme, we're not supposed to worry about our life here. We're supposed to be worrying about the well-being of others that we deal with each and every day. And make sure that they get to heaven. Because if we have the capacity to realize that these tasks are possible and that they can be done to help other people and we see where such deeds can specifically be applied for the betterment of another person's salvation and their spiritual well-being, that's because God wants us to see it and wants us to do something about it. Because there are other people, going back to the previous question, some people can't see that that work needs to be done. And if they're not seeing it and you do, that's because God's sitting there and saying that person either has a cross or a limitation or whatever in a different role. Guess what? If you see that it has to be done, deal with it. This is kind of like that whole littering situation. If there's litter and you happen to see it, don't walk by it. Just pick it up. Do it. That's what God wants you to do. That's why you have that capacity. Up to and including, by the way, 
when someone annoys you or does something difficult to create a situation on you that just got way more difficult, that's God giving you the opportunity to do corporal and spiritual works of mercy for that individual. Even if all it is, is before you go and get angry at that person, you stop and say, maybe I shouldn't get angry. Maybe I should pray instead. And then you pray for that person to actually get their life sorted out. So they stop annoying you and everybody else and stop hurting people and stop making things difficult. That's a huge, huge spiritual work. If you can contain yourself and not get angry and do what you need to do for God. There are so many opportunities that are presented with the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. The question is whether or not we're willing to accept that work and do what God needs done on his behalf. So ask us, I guess, if you guys have questions as you're looking at this or thinking about it or trying to figure out how this applies or looking for more examples, we should be able to help you out. So I will include what I can uh, from the standpoint of explaining them or adding more detail from other Catholic sites out there. Um, but make sure to ask us and engage us. We'll be happy to add more context as we are able. So uh, moving from there, this leads us into the Ten Commandments. So like I said before earlier in the lesson, these are all related. So the two great commandments do not supplant or replace the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, although they were given to Moses, were not taken out of effect. They are absolutely still in effect. We are supposed to follow them. And before anyone complains about it and says, well, those are the Catholic commandments and they're different numbers than the Protestant ones. Uh, St. Augustine, so St. Augustine, actually had two different numberings of the Ten Commandments. And it just so happens that the Protestants use one of them and the Catholics use the other. But in the end, a Catholic came up with the numbering for them to align them to what was given out of the book of Exodus. So just as a heads up. So we'll hit. The Ten Commandments, we'll talk a little bit more about those, and then we'll uh, work on closing out the lesson. So question 195 here, what are the commandments of God? The commandments of God are these ten. One, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have any strange gods before me. This means that we don't do idolatry. And although many non-Catholics would accuse Catholics of practicing idolatry because we pray to saints, um, a Catholic does not confuse a creature with God. We make statues of creatures, just like Protestants make statues of creatures. The difference is where Protestants are okay making plastic statues and setting them up for nativity sets on Christmas, and then they put them away after that. Catholics make ours out of stone and leave them up all year round because that's part of the gospel of the poor. So for people who can't read, and for people who don't know what these saints looked like and what their attributes were that made them holy when they were living here on earth, when they were working in concert with God, the statues are there to show the aspect of this individual and what they gave to God and did for God. And that's why we remember them. So when you look at St. Patrick and you see him standing on a snake, that's his thing in terms of what he did to get snakes out of Ireland. When you look at Therese, and the flowers. She's known as the little flower. Uh, what You have all the St. Francis statues that are all over the place in gardens. Um, you just keep going. It's all these saints are being, they have, they're known, it's what they're known for. You well, see it's saint, easy to confuse idolatry. It's easy for the Protestants to confuse Catholics praying to saints as idolatrous because they don't have an actual sacrifice. They don't have actual worship. So in Protestant right. churches, they just have essentially what is a reading of scripture and prayers. It's a prayer service. So all they have is prayers. And so when Catholics are praying for intercession from these saints, it's very easy to understand why 
they think we're being idolatrous because that's all they have. They do not have a, a renewed sacrifice at every mass. So their pinnacle, so the Protestant pinnacle of worship is prayer. Um, from the Catholic standpoint, the Catholic pinnacle of worship is the sacrifice of the mass where the son is reoffered to the father. Um, that is something that only a priest can do. So because we have that other level uh, and that also allows us, we're in two, we have basically four different purposes for prayer that we're uh, acknowledging. Yeah. Um, so, so acts is uh, the way to remember the four types of prayer. There's adoration, confession, or contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. So yeah, Catholics have four different types of prayer that we acknowledge. These types of prayer are used differently, as one would expect. But adoration in and of itself, uh, as well as contrition, are primarily, and I should say primarily, they are. That's to God. I don't apologize to the saints in the same way I apologize to God. So the saints, it's more of that filial, hey, you're kind of like me. We kind of share this together. We're uh, on the same level. Um, obviously, they're ascended and I'm not. So I, I have a lot of ways to go to get to the, the level of any saint. And I'll never get to the level of the Blessed Virgin Mary or those at the top tier. Totally well, I guess get that. it goes into that. Adoration is still reserved for God alone. So, and Catholics know that difference. And I think that from the Protestant standpoint, they don't understand how you could ask someone in prayer for anything because their definition of prayer is very narrow by comparison to the definition of a Catholic. The whole point being. Well, I mean, so the last three, right? So confession or contrition, right? Thanksgiving and supplication. Again, the only way to talk with the dead Right, and not in the weird occultist way, but talk with the church triumphant um, is through prayer, right? And so I agree, generally, you're not going to confess anything to St. Anthony or St. Patrick. Like, there's really no need. But I suppose you could just because of the fact that only God really knows what's in your heart, right? Only God can read your mind. These other saints, they don't have that power, right? So, in order for you to tell them something, you have to speak it. But it's really the thanksgiving or supplication. But again, it's like talking with friends, right? I have to, if you do something nice for me, Pete, I should thank you, right? If you need something from me, you need to ask. Like that's that's what our prayer is when we're asking for the intercession of saints. We're asking them for favors with God because they are actually close to God up in heaven, closer than I am. When those things are rewarded, Right, we can thank Saint Joseph, Saint Anthony, whoever it is. But again, like you said, Protestants really only have that. I guess I suppose they have Thanksgiving, but it's Thanksgiving in a form of adoration of God. Right? They only have like Big A and then little subsets of it, um, as far as their prayers, uh, which is why they confuse our, you know, our various icons with pagans. Yeah, I, the. The confusion there, hopefully it's cleared up then for anyone who's listening. We have a differentiating view in terms of the saints again. So I know we've had lessons on that, specifically looking at communion with saints. But in this case, we want to make sure that everyone's aware that, no, we don't worship the saints. We need their help. Additionally, the other thing I'm going to add here that I think is kind of lost, especially on many Protestants, honestly, a lot of Catholics as well, um, we got to watch how much we like idolize the things that are around us and whether that's money or whether that's sports or whether that's food or whether that's the flesh so in terms of guys gawking at girls girls doing whatever guys 
the whole thing it's like we really need to make sure that all of our desires are rightly ordered and we don't find ourselves hamstrung by a desire for something that is not holy so god is what fills us god is the only sustenance that we really need and he'll provide food and shelter money and stuff as long as we're doing what we need to do for his glory that's something that if we walk away from it the amount of suffering that we get as a result of walking away from him is huge so the first commandment is the key to all of it the way that that gets broken is the sin of pride all the rest of the commandments which come after the first commandment has to be violated in order to violate any of the rest of them period the only reason we would do any of the rest of the stuff that's on this list that we're going to cover here which will be a little quicker um, is because we've already violated the first commandment so i guess keep that in mind as we go through and start looking at the rest of the commandments here so second commandment thou shalt not take the lord's name in vain i hear a lot of catholics do this and it's really hard to deal with it's hard to bear i do not like hearing catholics especially catholics but protestants as well saying oh my god god damn it jesus christ while angry or frustrated or surprised we got to stop that god does not care about any of the little things that we could possibly attach that useless set of words to it's not doing us any good it's causing more harm god's name should be taken with reverence jesus's name must be taken with reverence christ the consecrated one all of that reverent we need to actually think about what we're doing and speak properly speak precisely and if we are surprised about something just try to say wow oh my my goodness do something else just walk away from that oh and by the way gosh in the dictionary also means god if you actually look at it so you got to watch out about saying gosh as well but think of these things the second commandment's a big deal and in terms of uh father ripiger has talked about this as well by using the lord's name in vain that blasphemy that is actually being done we are actually opening doors to demons of the air so when you look at weird weather patterns and everything else we're allowing demons to take control whenever we go and use the lord's name in vain so please i implore you catholics and protestants stop doing that it's not helpful for anyone and it sets a bad example because we don't want other people thinking that well you worship this god but you seem to go and use him in the most frivolous and weird periods of time like you don't need to say that there's other ways that we can then comment be surprised be frustrated or get a hold of ourselves so we don't end up violating the second commandment yeah there's uh there's quite literally one of the marian apparitions that deals with the second commandment and what we're about to talk uh the third commandment her whole reason for showing up is to admonish men for their blasphemous use of the lord's name and for not the third one not keeping the holy the sabbath day so god's pretty serious about that in the third commandment when we talk about keeping the lord's day holy this means it's not just go to church all right i get it we, we've known that one um, and that's important and that means we better be at church for catholics it is a mortal sin not to go to mass on a sunday and i think by that same token we really need to think about the fact that anyone who doesn't see that as an imperative is not ordering their life properly. God gave us everything, all right? Period, done. Everything we have is his. It's from him. As a result, if we cannot give him merely this hour or two every Sunday, what are we living for? What's the point? 
If he gave us everything and of all the hours, so you're talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you can't give him one or two, come on. That, that is not worshiping God if we can't even, it, we're not even putting God in the right place if we can't keep the Lord's day holy and, and go to mass or, you know, that's what we need to do. Secondly, that day is not for work. And I mean, servile work. That day then has to be in reflection of God. That has to be a day of rest where we allow ourselves to contemplate the fact, here, I made it to Sunday, the day when the Lord rose from the dead. Every Sunday is supposed to be Easter Sunday. That's just like every Friday we should be looking at as Good Friday to suffer with our Lord. Every Saturday is the vigil preparing for what would come on Easter Sunday. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. And if we don't treat it like that, we don't treat God like God on Sundays, we are completely missing the boat. So make sure that we recognize the third commandment, keep the Lord's day holy, go to mass. Don't do unnecessary servile work is what we can't do. So unnecessary servile work. I will post a thing in the description to talk about unnecessary servile work. But other than the fact that we have to cook food and sometimes there's other things that have to be picked up very uh, quickly just because it's just what we do during a day, we should not be out in the field. We should not be out mowing the lawn. We should not be out gardening. I get it. You may like it and you may find it relaxing, but the problem is it is unnecessary servile work, which ultimately detracts from the worship of God, the contemplation of God and the things that need to be done for his glory. And I get it. You may not like the fact that I'm saying it, but you got to look it up and understand what our theology means, what it means and how you can do it the best way possible for his glory. Now, that's not to say you can't read scriptures. That's not to say you can't write notes on scriptures. It's not to say you couldn't even write poetry. You couldn't write books. You couldn't ultimately teach classes about theology and God on those days. Those are spiritual works of mercy. That's a good thing. But don't waste your time on servile work that detracts from the glory of God and is more worldly than it is divine. So let's do what the church tells us to do. Moving on to the fourth commandment, honor thy father and mother. Um, this should fall right in line with the first commandment and the second and the third, because who's our Holy Father? Or I should say our, our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father is God. Um, our Heavenly Mother, Mary. And then we look at all of the people who are in charge. This is a, a piety. Uh, this is the virtue of piety is what we're talking about. This is actually submitting ourselves to right authority to do what they actually demand of us when they're in a place to do so. And so we need to respect authority wherever it sits. Um, if it's legitimate authority. And honestly, if it's sitting there in a way that doesn't actually prohibit us from doing what we need to do as Catholics, it's a legitimate authority. Honor it and please humble yourself so that you can actually abide by the fourth commandment. Um, the other thing I'll do, Al, is I will also link um, Father Ripiger's talk on the Decalogue, where he actually does an entire talk. It's probably about an hour long, specifically on the Ten Commandments and how St. Thomas Aquinas breaks these all down. It's very good. Um, Moving on to the fifth commandment, thou shall not kill. So I don't like that wording. Um, we'll go and correct it because what it's actually supposed to be is thou shall not murder. So God literally commanded the Israelites when they entered the promised land to kill all of the men, women, and children and livestock that were in there when they went in. Some of the tribes, they could uh, subjugate them, but some of them he wanted extinguished. That's a trait uh, smithism. The other thing is, too, is that we have to remember the Levites were also commanded to kill the heads of the families that were uh, violating God's laws as well. So it's not kill. God commanded his people to kill. It's murder and cold blood because we don't want to follow God's laws. That's what we're not allowed to do. Um, so we have to make sure to differentiate kill and murder. Murder is cold blood. Murder is malice. Kill sometimes 
soldiers are not violating the commandments of God if they are lawfully doing their job on a battlefield and kill opposing forces. So let's, we got to make sure we keep the context there. Uh, sixth commandment, also closely related to the ninth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, this is, if we have marriage vows, we keep them. If we are not married, we have to live our life as if we are not married and stay celibate until we are actually married. This is hard in the modern era because it's not how the world is structured. It places value on infidelity. It places value on fleshly comforts, um, adultery, and all of the things surrounding it, including fornication, are actually supported uh, in the modern culture. And even among Protestants, they're not criticized sufficiently or treated as the abominable acts that they are before God. God gave us those acts. You're talking um, the ability to procreate, to copulate for the purpose of making new souls for heaven. That's the end state. So the reason there is intercourse between men and women is for souls. So that's just the way it is. Uh, now, does it feel good and whatever? Yeah, but there's a, a sharing with God that there's God is involved in that act. And so the problem is when man tries to remove God from that act, that's when we're talking adultery, we're talking all the violations, the sins of the flesh, um, and anything that then prohibits all of that uh, union from going on, that's what the Sixth Commandment is covering. St. Thomas goes into much more detail here, and that's why I'll, I'll link it so you guys can listen to that. Um, seventh Commandment, thou shalt not steal. That's pretty self-explanatory. Any type of way you could possibly consider thievery from anyone or... Uh, if you ever find get... yourself having to rationalize it or play like a nuanced game, I would just say be wary. If you ever have to be, well, is it stealing? Because it's kind of, a, eh, just tread lightly. Um, it's if you ever, I think, I think just a good rule of thumb is if you ever have to ask yourself, is this stealing? Because stealing so ob should be so obviously apparent. If you're ever rationalizing it, then I guess my gut instinct would be to say, yes, it is. Don't do it. And the seventh commandment is tied to the tenth as well. So we're about ready to cover that. Thou shall not bear false witness against thy neighbor is the eighth commandment. And so, again, don't lie. You shouldn't be lying. This goes back to don't try to play with nuanced games and do other things where, in the end, speaking falsehoods, these all come back to bite us. They're all sinful. And again, as I said, ninth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Yeah, because thy neighbor is married to his wife. So you shouldn't be trying to incite adultery. And the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Again, why do you want to go and get all of the stuff that they already have? We shouldn't be one ninth and 10th commandment are looking at envy and two, they're actually looking at, we shouldn't be looking to steal or take advantage of a situation, basically creating ill gotten gain is what we don't want that. So a lot to take in on the 10 commandments there. We just covered them very briefly. Please go check out father Ripiger's talk and look at uh, St. Thomas's work on the Decalogue and the Summa Theologiae. There's a lot of stuff there, but it's really good and it'll help kind of expand on this. So you can get a better uh, grasp on the full meaning of the 10 commandments beyond just what the text has uh, there in front of us. Question 196. Should we be satisfied merely to keep the commandments of God? No, we should not be satisfied merely to keep the commandments of God, but should always be ready to do good deeds, even when they are not commanded. Because that's what's Christian. That's how we act like Christians. Because in the grand scheme of everything, um, yeah, you know, Jesus Christ could have totally just lived his life and not done any miracles. He could have done that. 
and we would have gotten nothing. There would be no redemption. There would be no heaven for any of us because he would just, he would have been fine. He'd been cool. But all the rest of us uh, would have had to suffer all sorts of torments in hell. So if Christ is our example and we're going to follow him in everything he does, that means we better be doing good deeds even when they're not necessarily commanded of us. And that is what we witness with the saints. What did the saints do? Especially the martyrs. The martyrs said, no, it's not about just keeping the commandments and doing it in private. Whenever they ended up in a situation where they had to actually continue going forward, keep the commandments, even when they weren't explicitly commanded to go and publicly stand up to the emperor, they did. And so we have an opportunity then to share in that sacrifice that Christ made on the cross and share in his charity when we give to others, regardless of whether or not it's explicitly demanded of us and whether or not it's actually not going to be a sin if we don't help. So always think about how far we can go and how much good we can do, because really it's about giving up everything we have to get grace of God forever, to get the beatific vision. So it's not satisfaction, which is the bare minimum here. So this is uh, go all the way. Question 197, what does our Savior especially recommend that is not strictly commanded by the law of God? Our Savior especially recommends the observance of the evangelical counsels, voluntary poverty, perpetual chastity, and perfect obedience. So these, this would be the direct correlation to what the religious vows are and what they're talking about in this question, what the church is talking about here. The easiest way to be connected to God as... Christ told the rich man, if you want to follow me, give up everything. And these councils here are talking about giving up money, giving up the fleshly comforts, and doing what you're told when you're told to do it. Because if we can get rid of the world and all the things the world's trying to take from us or make us do, um, we have every opportunity to be closer to God because God's the only thing left to fill us when we cut out all the rest of the worldly so the goal here is virtue. The whole idea of being chaste, right? That goes back to why priests are celibate, a life of chastity. In the end, it opens them up so they can actually receive God. It focuses their entire life on virtue. So they're focusing it on humility and they're focusing it on not money of the world, which God doesn't care about. They're not focusing it on fleshly comforts, which in heaven... There is no intercourse. There is no worry for adultery or any of it, fornication. All that stuff's gone. It is interesting no how point. so many of the other religions of the world, heaven is just essentially... Hedonism? Yeah, it's just like it's the best part. It's the best physical comforts you could have on earth is what heaven is, which, you know, it has its initial appeals of like, oh, wow, when I go up there, you know, I have so many virgin virgins and I it's just one big party in the halls of wherever and all this stuff but when you actually i guess think about it you're kind of sitting there going man that's it just one party forever like i've already i've been to a really good party like you know i've 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 lived the hedonist life and like that's literally the best that heaven has to offer yeah it's not infinite so we basically are watching failed religions false religions take heaven and turn it into something natural and finite as opposed to God and Catholicism and looking at heaven and realizing it's the infinite where we get to sit in infinity 
with the ultimate worship service that never ends in direct union with infinity, our creator, who is continuing to give us every single day of eternity more of himself to continue to expand and to build. It's something that we can't even contemplate because of how great it is. There's nothing like it on this earth. There's nothing like it in money or in the flesh or in our pride and power that could ever replace it. So what we're doing, the whole point of question 197 and doing what God wants us to do, it's all in preparation to be with him forever. So if that's what we want and we prefer that to hell and to burning and demons and pain, and we would rather be with God, then let's prepare to be obedient, knowing that he is everything to us in terms of all power. He is the one that actually can supply for everything. Just look to God. That's our point. So hopefully that helps everyone kind of understand the two great commandments of the church. That's what we covered today. It was uh, an interesting lesson. I will make sure the links are loaded up for all of you guys so that we can help educate more. You can find the source material we were using to talk from. And then uh, make sure, please, to follow us on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, so that uh, we can keep working on getting more content to you guys, build up that community on YouTube. So when we hit a thousand subscribers, that will open up some other features for us, which would be great. So please share our content with anyone else you can so that they can listen. If there's other things we can do to help make this better for you as the listener, so that you like this course just a little more, tell us what we can do. We're happy to help. So thank you for your time. Next week, there's uh, more, like I said, in this section that we're going to cover. So uh, stay tuned and uh, we will talk to you later then. So uh, as always, St. Joseph, pray Pray for for us. us.